0: I always say now flash forward that being a costume designer is being a people detective. And that skill set happened from my youth from you know third grade of just the survival technique coping mechanism for needing to to belong.
1: My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blammo. My guest this week is Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning costume designer Ariane Phillips. We get into everything from her years working with Madonna and Lenny Kravitz to collaborating with Matthew Vaughn on the Kingsman movie series, Tom Ford's films, and Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ariane goes deep on how growing up viewing herself as an outsider helped train her eye to masterfully expedite a filmmaker's vision and create the iconic looks we all obsess over. I am so pleased to bring this to you. Let's go. Every movie you've worked on has been a movie that, in my life, changed how I thought about clothes and also, like, just like severely increased the absolute love affair that I had with clothes. When I, I didn't know this, but the Crow and Tank Girl.
0: Mm.
1: Holy <laughs> shit! Like it, that's that
0: a good story, right?
1: Well, I mean, but that stuff, like for me, like that's as like a young, you know, kid in in what well, I was in elementary school or whatever. That blew my mind, and I didn't know that like people could. You know, and obviously they're you know fantasy movies, but like I didn't know that like clothes could be viewed and put together that way. So like, f- mm-hmm. seriously, from the bottom of my heart, like mm-hmm. your like I am kind of here right now because of the the world that you've helped. Oh my build. god,
0: that is so like emotional for me to hear because <laughs> it's like you know the the weirdest thing is is like here I am, I'm in my early fifties, I've never done anything else but this. Um, I mean, I, I worked, I mean, when I was 16 years old, I worked in a clothing shop in Santa Cruz, California, where I went to high school and then I went to college and I, you know, a, a series of events. I uh, decided uh, to be a stylist, um, which nobody knew what a stylist was in 1984 right. um, because my friend had gone to London, my best friend, and he had gone to London and he's like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to be stylists. And cause I was obsessed with pop culture and with fashion. Right. And the, the kind of convergence in the, in the best form for me was England because you had the social political movement, the, which fired the youth movement and the, the tribalism of like the late 70s, early 80s with, um, you know, uh, the, the, the the mashup between street culture and music was so um, just enmeshed. And I guess I think the thing is, is because if I think of my career, and it's not linear for me because that was my point of entry. Like the idea of like, oh, I'll be a stylist. I'll be, I'll be a stylist at a fashion size. Nobody, you know, it's a stylist like in the mid eighties, people thought you were like a hairdresser. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, it was the idea of being kind of like a sculptor with clothes. So like you could create uh, identities through clothes. Well, that's how I, as a kid, um, Well, wait a minute, before I go there. You're fine. So so the thing is is that when you when I look back at my career, which I don't do a lot of looking back, mostly the only time I look back is when I'm having conversations with people like you who maybe some of my work has resonated from usually from like when you were young, that you know, which is really super cool because I was young too when it was happening and I'm I'm older than you, but I was you know doing this kind of uh I pursued this career without a role model because what I did is I, my entry point was styling, which led me to want to uh, work narratively. That was an organic evolution from being a stylist of, of like creating character, which really happened. Um, So my entry point was styling and I was doing a lot of print work. And then I started doing music videos because my dream when MTV came out, like I was a kid and I my dream was to work on music videos because that was the perfect mashup between music and style and storytelling. And then once I started working on music videos, um, and I've said this a lot in interviews before, there, I learned there are two kinds of videos. There's the performance videos where people are singing their song and they're at a microphone and you got the drummer and the bass player, what keyboard player, whatever, and they're performing. And then you have the narrative story-driven videos where the, your, people are acting out the song and maybe it's an actor or a model or somebody is, you know, um, it, it becomes a script. And so when I start working on videos, and uh, actually, the first video where it was kind of a eureka moment was I um, started my career with Lenny Kravitz. As you saw the documentary, oh yeah, and um, we did a video, Mr. Cab Driver, for his, from his first album. And I remember the director saying, or Lenny, or something, okay, we got to dress this guy to look like a cab driver. And I was like, because I was used to kind of working in fashion and and dressing Lenny just like making things look cool with different references and different ideas but all of a sudden with that song i had to dress an actor i don't remember if he was an actor or, you know just someone's friend to look like a cab driver and i had to think about okay what does cab driver look kind of the art typical cab driver the fact you know and i was like okay he needs the dad cardigan he needs that you know the the apple hat the apple jack hat the you know flat cap blah, 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 blah. And that really uh, resonated for me in a very deep way of like the idea that you could create identity, that you can create identity and tell a story in a nonverbal way visually through how you dress your characters. Now that really resonated for me because as a teenager and even younger than that, I always viewed myself as an outsider. I I was raised in a very kind of liberally progressive, um, very young parents, artistic bohemian lifestyle. And we moved around constantly and I was always a new kid in school. So I always felt like uh, every time I went to a new school, I would try and mimic the way the other kids were so that I could fit in and not... You know, be, you know, it was a very nerve-wracking thing to be the new kid all the time. And I'm talking, I, you know, before high school, I went to about ten schools. Uh, oh so my lord! A lot, and um, so that was like a constant thing. And also, my heightened, um, my heightened ability to, to, um, to observe. Right. So when I would go to a new school and be a new kid, I was hyper aware of how everyone else was like, you know, so that I could fit in. It was always so that I didn't look like how I felt, which was an outsider forever, the new kid. So I always say now, flash forward, that being a costume designer is being a people detective. And that skill set happened from my youth, from, you know, third grade of just the survival technique, coping mechanism for needing to to belong. And then as I got older and into my adolescence, I really identified with outsider culture. So Rocky Horror Picture Show I talked about in the documentary was huge for me. And, um, you know, the the new wave and punk rock movement, more kind of the English new wave um, situation because most punk rock was pretty testosterone, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really like. I was much more into kind of the glam expression. Kind of, I think you know, with the typical things of people my generation of like Mark Bolin from T. Rex and David Bowie and all this this incredible visuals from the '70s that we were exposed to. And then the late seventies, early eighties came around and it was really, um, you know, were you a new romantic, were you, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, there are all the different um, fractions that you would, uh, you know, there's a time where like, you know, you know, everybody cut their hair. We made the, you know, I remember being in high school where if people still had long hair, which people did, they weren't cool because there was this cultural shift going on. So um, I digress, but what I would say is that, so my entry point uh, was styling and then, uh, I, and then I, it evolved into more narrative. And then I pursued costume design. I didn't come about it in a traditional way, like most of my colleagues of like going to school to study it or apprenticing on the way up. So, uh, and then um, as a result of, I'm I'm jumping timeline, but as a result of, uh, and then once I I had my early film experiences, um, I never wanted to give up fashion and print and styling because I felt like working in print form, because most fashion uh, then was print. Uh, or almost all fashion. So I love working with, I love photography and I love the tableau form. And for me, I always felt like that kept, it, they both, like they both informed each other from print to uh, narrative film or videos because it kept my eye learning about balance because there was that styling is about balance and then evolving into character development, being a costume designer. And then, Flash forward to, I guess it was 2000, I can't even remember the year. Madonna was asked, uh, we started working together in 97, and she was asked to do a a play in the West End in London. And I had been a theater kid, a theater nerd. Um, I grew up, my parents always took my sister and I to, we lived close to San Francisco and we go to see... Well we went to community theater, then we went to professional theater in San Francisco and opera, one of my mom's best friends same. oh wow,
1: that's real theater, yeah, yeah okay. and, um,
0: yeah, and we saw all the all the shows we went there was a place in San Francisco called a c t american conservatory theater and 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 um I studied there when I was a teenager, summer programs, actually, Nick Cage was in my class my when I was sixteen uh, before he was famous, <laughs> um, we were the same age. Anyway, I digress. But um, so for me, when I got that opportunity with Madonna to to work on a play uh, to be the costume designer in the West End, and usually when and the great thing about working with Madonna is that she does so many, uh, she tries, she's a very curious person and she's fearless creatively. So, you know, whether it's theater or touring or acting or directing, she's constantly trying new things. And lucky for me, I got to, be on that ride for 20 years plus. And so, uh, you know, here, you know, it's not like, it was like, bam, you know, this opportunity. And then the thing is, whenever we would do something like theater or she would say, okay, all right, you, you you're not just dressing me, you have to dress everyone because, and that's the thing I always appreciate about her. She goes, I want you to be the costume designer for the whole thing. You know, a lot of uh, big stars come into, a movie or theater and they, they, they have someone who just does their costumes and Madonna always, Madonna. So, um, ensemble thinking when she collaborates on projects that she's like, you have and even, and when, so when people come and collaborate with her, like Missy Elliott or Britney Spears or, you know, Pharrell Williams, whoever over the years, then I have to dress everyone because she wants everyone to look. So anyway.
1: So here's the thing though, that, that, uh, I'm glad you didn't mention cuz I can call it out. The thing that you probably have that is above all the the single most incredible brilliant talent is you're like a like this level of diplomacy and this Rosetta Stone that exists between <laughs> the creative and the and the creators, right? Like you have cuz I've been on sets where you have a a, mem- a talent member who's who has an idea and then you have a director who also has an idea. And a lot of times there there can be, I guess the word I would use is friction. Yes. <laughs> and, and the thing that you have, and obviously this is discussed in the documentary and stuff too, is an extremely high level of trust. And I, I, I'm just quite curious, like how you balance um, your own creative, you know, like what you want creatively with what everyone does. Because in in a way, like all of these things turn into some form of compromise. I'm, I'm just assuming.
0: Well, it's collaboration. I mean, that's at the heart of like what I do and what I love. I'm not a writer, or painter works alone in a vacuum. I mean, it's for me, the, the magic happens when I'm collaborating with, with people, and when our, I have an idea and you have an idea and we come together and the idea even gets better. So um, in the best case scenario, um, I am an interpreter and I see a costume designer as an interpreter. So when I'm working with a director in a movie, my job is to expedite their vision, right? So like when I'm sitting in the room with Tom Ford and he's telling me what his visual ideas are or anybody, I'm just giving Tom as an example sure. My job is to understand the overall tone and feeling and the story and point of view that he wants to tell and to bring something to it. So, um, you know, I, so I understanding the point of view of the director. Now, oftentimes there's been times where, you know, with Madonna as an, you know, an artist with a, a vision, she is really unique because she hires people that um, like Jean-Baptiste Mondino, for instance, to me, um, Jean-Baptiste Mondino is like one of the biggest cultural icons for me. And someone that single-handedly influenced me when I was looking at magazines, like the face and, Id magazine, early early fashion magazines before I met Madonna, before Lenny, and I always looked to him. And I of course loved his work that he did for years with Gautier, and then the years he the work he did with Madonna way before my time. And I always and his fashion editorial, and I always really appreciate Jean Baptiste because he, um, you know, fashion for me is um, a reflection of our culture at any time. So it's a time capsule. Like if you look at the cover of Vogue from 1960 or, you know, uh, 1940 or 1980, it's going to reflect to you what the cultural zeitgeist, zeitgeist is. Like zeitgeist, sorry. the cultural. No, you're fine. Yeah. Um, and that, I love the relevance of fashion because fashion is about a moment in time. And as a costume designer, I use that timeline of relevance uh, if that, you know, when I'm telling a story. So, so, um, so the great thing about Madonna that I learned, which I had no idea when I started working with her, you know, what her method was or her, you know, when she works with people, hires them or collaborates with them, she, the expectation is you really have to bring it. And you that your input is as valuable as anybody else's input. She has a lot of strong ideas, but she's as interested and expects to have ideas from you or Jean-Baptiste. And, and then it becomes a conversation. So I always, I mean, I think that's why the collaboration lasted so long. Always felt incredibly valued. So... Um, you know, there are times when I, you know, there's certain kinds of projects that I stay away from now because I have the wisdom to know that the compromise of the vision of the project is just too difficult when you have a ton of people you have to answer to. So, for instance, uh, yeah, so for me, I like working with directors on movies where I don't have to talk to the studio. That was one thing Matthew Vaughn said to me when he offered me the first Kingsman. He said a lot of things to me, he called me at like, he got my number from my agent and he called me directly, woke me up at five in the morning and said, I have this movie you have to do. And he told me all kinds of things like who the actors were and this and that the thing that really, uh, cause it wasn't the kind of movie from the outside that I would have pursued. Cause I really stay away from a lot of action oriented mm-hmm. movies for a specific reason, because the action use action films, usually the costumes have to serve the action. So for instance, you can't use a vintage dress or a vintage suit on an actor in a, in a, in a movie where you have like, you know, stunts and multiple actors who are playing the same role. You, oh. have, to, you have to have multiples and you, and oftentimes the, action that's called for in the script is going to take precedent over the look. And um, oftentimes because you have to make a lot of practical decisions. So if you see someone running through fire, falling off a building, getting in a fight, getting shot, all those costumes are in iterations of like, you know, five to 15 to 20. I mean, it's its own logistical challenge, which a lot of people are great at it. I find it, you know, if I'm in a meeting, the the stunts uh, and the action are going to win out usually most of the time. But it, anyway, um, so Kingsman, when um, Matthew Vaughn talked to me about Kingsman, one of the things, one of the first things he said is you'll never have to talk to the studio, just me. And I, then he got my attention um, <laughs> because... Because that means, you know, a lot of films, if they're over $50 million, as you know, it's a lot of money, right? So you have studio executives, uh, some are okay, most are out of touch with like what costumes are. Um, And you have to listen, you have to take a lot of input from the studio. Usually movie over $50 million, there's a lot of merchandising involved. So you have the Halloween costume and the bobblehead or the McDonald's cup or whatever it is. And as a costume designer, you have to collaborate uh, or be aligned with uh, the marketing department and the merchandising department.
1: Oh, that sounds unpleasant.
0: Well, it's really unpleasant because costume designers don't own our IP. We work for hire, so we don't get any uh, any financial benefit, let alone, benefit, let alone uh, credit.
1: Well, here, here's a, a thing that I, I want to ask, though. But in this new sort of world where so much stuff is documented, and I remember um, when the photo came out for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood – Right, And it was this like
0: a a year ahead of time.
1: Yeah. It was way Um, ahead of time.
0: Yeah. Leo and Brad just standing there. Yeah. That was the teaser.
1: Yeah. And that broke the internet. I remember on my, on my Instagram, on everything, every single person was sharing it every. And so on the IP thing, because you were that costume designer and I'm not saying that like, you know, not like NFTs or royalty type stuff from it, but like, that was you. Like that look was you and knowing also when that kind of came out and how much you were a part of that. I, I, I wonder, like, do you feel like there's, it's easier to take credit for stuff now because also people really just dive multiple layers deep into things. Um,
0: I think the thing is, is it's not just me. I appreciate you saying that it's also hair and makeup. It's also Quentin. It's, you know, it's a collaboration, but what you notice are the clothes, right? That exactly. As, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the public, you notice the clothes. I mean, the truth is a lot of people went into what that look was besides me, the hair and makeup. I appreciate you say that. And, you know, that's something that as costume designers is, uh, you know, we're constantly having to uh, explain the job that we do, not only to the public, but to people in our own industry, because it's a job that even producers don't understand. Not all of them, of course, there are people that do. The people doesn't go, yeah, you're just gonna go to the mall and go shopping. It's like the amount of research and time and development. And you know, whether you're sourcing something or designing something or, you know, it's it's layers and layers of of detail and work that goes into that creating that character and lots, hours and hours and, and thousands of hours of conversations and fittings and swatching and, you know, so. I was,
1: I, I was curious how you were brought on for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I know, um, you know, creatively of Quentin Tarantino's role and how he works. I mean, it, there's a lot, every, everyone, there's an extremely high trust on set to be in the Quentin crew. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, he had been on my, my dream list of, you know, five directors, living directors that I would hope to work with. I mean, I never really thought that I'd get the opportunity. Um, Quentin's, you know, Quentin's quite loyal and um, you know, I, a huge admirer of his, of his, his, of his visual style, his visual storytelling style, as well as just, I mean, I love everything about his movies, but especially the fact there are very few directors, I think that have s- developed such a, a a specific style that is, you you know, when you're seeing a Quentin Tarantino film and you, you know, you know that by the sound of it, uh, you know, you can, you know, switch a channel or walk into a theater and the sound of it or, or if there's no sound, even the visual of it. So I really admire that about him. And, the, and, um, so, um, lo and behold, Quentin, the costume designer for Hateful Eight, his movie before that, uh, Courtney Hoffman, um, unbeknownst to me, had put me on a short list. She went on after being a costume designer for hateful eight and designing other movies to start being a director. And she had given Quentin a short list of costume designers. And I had been on that list, but I wasn't available, but I didn't know that. So somehow she heard that my movie went down and she's like, are you available? I'm going to tell Quentin to hire you. I'm like, that, you know, amazing. And also as luck would have it, one of Quentin's producers I had made a movie with like many years before. And so um, he was, so I got the message that he was really only going to meet with one other designer. He had one person in mind. He's going to meet with one other person so the, um, I had heard, I didn't know who the other person was, but I had an idea and I think it was someone he had worked with before. So I was like, okay, well, if, if I want this movie, I, um, I need to make a presentation. I had not done one for a long time because I've worked with a lot of the same people. I not only need to make a good presentation. I'd have to make an amazing presentation um, because otherwise why wouldn't he work with someone he's worked with before so uh, I got a meeting with him. And uh, first, before the meeting, I got to read the script. Unfortunately, I had to read it in his office because um, I guess Hateful Eight, that script had been leaked. And so on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you they weren't um, emailing scripts like a yeah. lot most of email scripts. So I had to go to the office and read it. And when I went to the office to read it, he wasn't there or anything. I actually read it in his at his desk in his chair looking out the window and then there was a the hollywood sign it was like art directed it was <laughs> and um when i went in the assistant said uh, i have to take your phone you can't have uh you know pen or paper what i'm like what and um and she said yeah you know uh, you know for security reasons sure so that was nerve-wracking. The fact that I had to read his script and mentally make notes for a presentation that I needed to make. It was just, because usually for me, it takes a couple of times to read a script to get it in my head. So then she hands me the script and it's like a novel. I've never <laughs> it was like, most scripts are 100 pages, right. 110 pages max. The script, I believe, was like 180 pages. 160 pages? And I said, okay, um, you know, usually it takes about 90 minutes to read a script. And I said, so what do you think, you know, 90, excuse me, 90 minutes, two hours? She goes, no, it'll take you more like three and a half hours. And she was so right because he writes like a novel, like there's so much in there, so much description. So Anyway, I'm giving you all the ins and outs, but it was nerve-wracking. I I just, like, the thing that was so magical about it is that Quentin is such a brilliant writer, and I realized reading that script, that writing is his, you know, we know he's a brilliant director, but writing is really his, where it comes from. He's really a writer. Like, when I was reading the script, I was like, okay, I'd never read any of Quentin's scripts, even though I know some of them are published and stuff, but yeah,
1: there's a lot of world building that's in there that doesn't, you know, other scripts. True, like it, it there's a lot that it's left to your imagination to figure out. But it's pretty specific in Tarantino scripts.
0: Yeah, most scripts are skeletons, right? With a lot of dry camera moves and you know, um, you know, uh, mild, you know, brief descriptions of where you are. Quentin's script is full of character, full of, you know, you know, this street signs, lots of description layers and layers and layers. So the great thing is that he's such a brilliant writer that I absorbed it. I spent probably about a hundred hours making a presentation for him. And luckily Courtney Hoffman gave me some tips about, you know, making it as immersive as possible. So I made a, a mix CD of music and I bought a few. They, I made like an experience. So when he opened the box, I made the presentation was like a flip book of images.
1: Can you publish that somewhere?
0: Oh, <laughs> he has it. I mean, I was going to
1: say like that.
0: I only have it digitally. He yeah. Has it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And then I put in like a Hawaiian shirt. I went to the flea market and got a Hawaiian shirt in his size. I had to guess what size he was. And then I got a a vintage thing of Brill cream, which is references Rick Dalton. I got a really cool pair of vintage shades. So I made it. So when he opened it, it was like all these kind of uh, some props in there that were integral to the characters in the story. And then I had a friend of a friend who's a, a composer and I had him make me a mix CD and then loop all the songs together with, um, station IDs from KHJ, which is the radio station that played so prominently in the movie. We found them. We found like station IDs and stuff, uh, for that radio station, uh, online digitally. So, so it was, it was really, really fun. And it, Um, And then when we had that, so I had it delivered. He had a minute to a few days to go through it. And then I got a meeting with him based on that. And we had um, just like a mind meld first interview where it was like, I think the producer, one of the producers knocked on the door and was like, is everything okay in there? Like two hours in Um, and Quentin, you know, so, so that was it. Quentin and I are exactly the same age. He's like a month older than me. And we kind of had a similar take on LA in 1969 because he was raised in the suburbs, uh, kind of outside of Hollywood, LA. I was raised in the Bay area, but my grandparents lived in LA. So I used to come here, you know, what in 1969, let's say I was born in 63, you know, six years old. So my experience of Hollywood, like, you know, Grahams Chinese Theater, which is now Man's Chinese Theater, and, you know, the Wax Museum, all that stuff. I remember what it's like to have the perspective of a six- or seven-year-old of Hollywood, and I got a lot of that through Quentin's writing, like, kind of through his perspective of Hollywood at that time. And Quentin said something that was really cool to the production designer, um, in a meeting that really stuck with me. And he said, you know, I want to have that feeling when we're driving down Hollywood Boulevard of like being a, you know, a six, you know, seven year old kid looking out the window. And I I just that resonated for me. So anyway. your
1: your ability to distill emotion is like beyond I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it's, what do you
0: mean by that? What do you mean, distill emotion?
1: Well, because I think, like, when we were talking, you didn't say a single thing about, like, I thought about the perfect shirt, and I went from there, or I thought about this jacket, or I thought about this, and that I think is why your career is, is so incredible and why you're so successful because you're 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 talking about. You're talking about emotions. You're talking about feelings. And then you're building worlds around those feelings.
0: Clothes are the tool. But what our job is to underscore the the tone and the feeling to help that, you know, I always say a costume is a beam me up suit for the actor so that when they put it on, they can get there. So all that stuff like, you know, is important. Like, you know, is it suede? Is it corduroy? Is it Brown? Is it rust? All that stuff's important. That's the fun stuff. But before that, you, you know, the job of costume designers to create a character and you do that initially with the director and then, you know, creating a backstory, who they are, why they are, what, you know, close our identity that's how we express ourselves or not express ourselves, right?
1: That, no, you're exactly right. I mean, and that's true. But the, where I think, you know, you unfortunately differ is there are a lot of costume designers and stylists and people that I've spoken to over the years and people I know who don't have that understanding. And I think that's when you, you, there's a, there's an occasional emptiness, And some of that work because there's not a world, there's not a feeling to attach yourself to. There is a piece of lifeless clothes, right? And like that's,
0: yeah, I hear you saying, and I take the compliment, but I have to differ with you because inherent in the job of a costume designer, now stylist is very different. Yes, yes, inherent in a costume designer is the thoughtfulness of who that character is and that character development. I have the benefit of working on films that I would say, because I have a multidisciplinary career and I work in theater and I work in fashion, I work with musicians and I work in film, I've been able to pick and choose the films that I want to work on that allow me to express that part. Like you're not gonna see me doing a rom-com. You're not gonna see me because there. I want to be able to express, I always like meaning. I like to, you know, not only meaning for the audience, but mostly quiet meaning for the actor to give them layers to work with. I don't mean visual layers. I sure. mean, you know, sometimes it's visual layers, but I love that, that collaboration with an actor, actor the, the, the conversation. So I would say that all my costume designer friends, and colleagues go about it in a similar thoughtful way. That's inherent in the job. Even if it's like, you know, you think about like a, a movie like Blades of go- Glory or something about Mary, the same process has gone on mm. um, or you know even like Minari. Minari this year to me are some of the most incredible costumes of the year, why? They're so quiet. They take, they're they're so quiet. They're so subtle. They're so perfect. They underscore and they're contemporary. So it's hard to, they're not as sexy and outrageous as like a single man or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because those are period films. But like Minari is an an example. That costume designer was so, her subtlety and her, I don't know her, she did such a beautiful job with developing those characters did you see minari uh,
1: yes yes yeah so
0: that to me is you know one of the year's best emma i love those costumes they were like a a, a revisionist confection of of that period um but uh, you know i hear what you saying i appreciate that i would i would say that uh you might not have such a you don't have a as lengthy process as you know, are such a deep process with styling uh, yeah. based on the logistics of like the time frame or the vehicle of what you're styling for. Yeah. But you know like when I do fashion photo shoots with Stephen Klein, we do get to do that because Stephen Klein's that kind of photographer. Like, you know it's just about what gets your mojo going, and that's, you know, uh, I think the kind of conversations I'm interested in having around. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big picture person. I like being involved in every other I want to know what the lighting's going to be like. I want to know what the set's going to be like. That's where like all those things kind of help elevate and work together.
1: Yeah, because I am curious like how you are able to switch your brain for some of these things, like the Gucci things you've done with, You know, Alessandra McHale, like uh, the.
0: It's just also super, like uh, you know, I I think you I think it would be safe to say that I have like creative ADD and that I cannot. And you know, when I was starting out, people were telling me all the time, "You need to focus. You need to work on fashion or film or whatever, or with musicians." which is why I moved from New York to LA because I felt like I was so easily influenced by everyone else telling me what I should do that I thought, well, if I moved to LA, which at that time in the nineties was kind of like a, a, you know, like if you, like when I moved to LA, everyone was like, okay, she's she's over. Like she's, <laughs> she's gone out to the, you know, to the Netherlands, you know, like the never, like she, it's all over for her. Um, and the great thing that L.A. afforded me was uh, without all the noise of what, because I'm easily impressionable. I mean, I have a big, you know, I'm opinionated, but uh, like everyone else, you know, character default is, you know, wanting to be perceived in a certain way, especially then at the beginning of my career. But um, so moving to L.A. really afforded me my Ability to figure out what I wanted my creative identity to be. I mean, it's kind of survival because there's like there's no other I'm a college dropout. I've never done anything else. I worked in some clubs in like the late 80s in New York, like at the Palladium. And you know, hey, I, nice. I, oh, yeah. No, I was a club kid when I first moved to New York, but uh, you know, I was like, I, I need to figure out how I can have stain power. And that's not even just optics, but to keep myself, I was a lot of people that I uh, had started with were suffering burnout um, where, you know, just like other stylists who, you know, maybe went down the cash money route, like, and, and then became redundant or, you know, whether they were working with like, I remember being really cognizant of that, that like, I wanted to not get to a point like i just needed to keep the job interesting for me so that was just being able to create a a resume that i was proud of so i wanted to so i i made a lot of sacrifices early on to not work for the many jobs and um and and just kind of navigate what i thought would would uh would, would give me sustainability creatively, like keep myself invested and learning. So because I didn't have a traditional education, um, uh, in terms of, you know, art or film or fashion, I, um, constantly felt like every job was an opportunity to learn something new. Mm. So, um, I still think about that when I choose to do a movie, am I going to learn something new? Um, Uh, is there are there people I'm going to collaborate with who I'm who I respect and admire that I'm going to learn something new so that is uh, a key ingredient for my own sustainability selfishly and it's kind of worked out okay for me yeah (laughs) you know and also that thing of being an outsider kid of not belonging to one group but kind of trying to like be able to navigate between everyone and that's that was like, oh, I can't really belong to fashion because like, I don't have the stomach for it. Uh, As a steady diet, it's so competitive. It's so isolating. And so it just made me really insecure just working in fashion. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go work in music videos with musicians who like there's, you know, when you're doing album cover shoots or, or a video, it's about something. You have the music to inspire you. It's not just making pretty pictures with models. Like you actually have something to work against creatively or work with. When I say work against, challenge me. So, like, you know, how can I interpret this music in this video or this artist? How can I help them be their best selves? How can I take it, help tell their story of the of the album or whatever? So then I'd go do music. Then I'd be like, okay, um, the personalities, I need a break. I can go work with models where I can kind of do whatever I want. Models will do what you want. You yeah. Express. And then it's like, okay, I need to really be part of an ensemble team that's telling a story. I'm going to go do a film. And that feeds me. So it's just keeping a, um, a you know, and then theater happens. So I did Madonna's play in the West End up for grabs in 2000. That was really exciting. And then um, one of the most important movies of my career for me personally, and my most proud movies is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And then um, 14 years later, they brought it to Broadway with Neil Patrick Harris and I was invited to design the costumes. It was like straight to Broadway. And that was incredible to be reunited with a lot of the people from the movie and new theater people. Neil was new to it. Um, The director, Michael Mayer, who's become a great collaborator of mine was, was new to it. And, um, and we had that experience. I had that experience on Broadway, which was like incredible. And I, uh, I, connected with the director, Michael Mayer. I went on to do an opera with him at the Met and, um, uh, at, uh, which was uh, something I never ever thought in a lifetime might be able to design an opera, and um, we did. It was a co-production with the English National Opera and the Metropolitan Opera, in New York. So we opened it in London, and then a year later um, at the Met, which was probably one of the greatest nights of my life with my family and my parents. It was just so cool, and um, so so I have kind of later in my career had these wonderful up. Op- opportunities with theater so like my next theater project um and i guess i'm kind of publicly saying it here for the first time but i'm designing the costumes for the devil wears prada on broadway
1: oh Um, shit
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah i know so it's kind of daunting we've been uh you know a little bit um delayed because of covid but uh we're actually going back into um you know, our, our uh, work at all. I think, I think it's going to come out and tw- I think, I think we'll be opening in 2022. Um, so the latter part of 2022. So it's just really cool to have the ability at this point in my career to move between genres at, at a level that I only dreamed of really.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, you're, you know, again, like when we were, when we were first talking, like all of the projects you've worked on are like, you can trace to cultural moments of fashion and stuff too. I mean, cause even, and here's the funny thing, and I'm sure you're aware of this. A lot of, um, you know, like, 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 okay, when, or Janie Bryant, excuse me, when she did Mad Men and how like that kind of. You know, in addition, Tom Brown was happening at the same time, and that launched this whole sort of, um, you know, slimmer suit thing, and then the J Crew and all that stuff happened. But like for you and the things that you've done, especially with like single man, all the Tom Ford stuff that really just kind of like blew up. Um, once upon a time in Hollywood, in which all my friends were trying to wear moccasins and jean jackets. Um, and then obviously I have no idea what's about to happen with the movie you just wrapped on the Harry Styles film. Um, Don't worry, darling.
0: The Olivia Wilde it, film.
1: It, excuse me. You're right. I appreciate the correction. It is Olivia Wilde film, her film, the director. Um, yeah. And, but it's like all of those things are, that's going to launch into a whole other new, like, you know, trend of stuff.
0: Who knows? Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, in terms of menswear, Kingsman was really my, yeah, geez, Vaughan, Kingsman. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew Vaughn really gave me um, an incredible opportunity. He said, Oh, you know, I have this, I've been talking to Mr. Porter about, and I, you know, I, why is it whenever, you know, this film is about gentlemen elite spies on Savile Row. And I, I've, you know, had my, I've grown up having my suits made for me on Savile Row. and I, have, you know, they need to be updated and I, I really want to bring Savile Row to the world. And uh, I, I want the costumes you design to also be, I want you to design simultaneously a collection that will be for sale, uh, Mr. Porter. Well, that was huge because as I said earlier in the conversation, costume designers are not invited into the merchandising component of films. And the fact that he invited me uh, for this challenge and Matthew understood the value of the authenticity of having the costume designer have that clear connection, from basically what we call costume to collection. So that if you want to wear a suit that the Colin Firth character or uh, a Taron Egerton character wear in the film, you could find it on Mr. Porter, and I, as a costume designer, can make sure that all the details, the same buttons, the same fabric, are going to be exactly what you saw in the film. Unlike any, you know, all merchandising, <laughs> it's, a, it's a facsimile of that because they take the costume designer out of it, and it's outsourced to some mass retailer, and it's a design studio, and they look at pictures, and they try and figure it out. This, of course, was on, you know, a high price point level, but the and with the integrity. But it was so interesting to me as a challenge and that I would learn something new, not only about Savile Rotelian, which I had started to learn about on um, the movie W.E., uh, which was about the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. It was my second Oscar nomination. And I really like. Not a lot of people saw that movie. Madonna directed it. But I think it's one of the, my most proud projects because I really got to learn about Savile Row and tailoring based on the research and the development for the costumes for the Duke of Windsor.
1: Yeah, Frederick Schulte and the English drape and all that stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, actually I learned a lot about, I read a lot about the Duke of Windsor himself and his he was very exacting about all his everything he wore was handmade and he was as we know a style icon but that didn't come from just dressing well he had an intrinsic understanding of tailoring from being raised as a child having his suits made he wrote about it extensively in his biography the, uh, the protocol of dressing in his family and the exacting uh, personality of his father, who micromanaged everything he wore. The details were uh, phenomenal and being able to study, you know, we got our hands on some of his suits that are now housed at like the Chelsea Museum and the V&A and looking at the architecture, he was also a tiny man,
1: Yeah, he was five,
0: five, seven. And he learned how to have clothes tailored for him to make the most of what he didn't have and to give the illusion. If you look at him in photos, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't know that he was such a small man because he was so clever And so exacting and so understood the art of tailoring. So I got a window into that because all the seats we made for James Darcy, who played the Duke of Windsor, um, were made. I I was lucky I found this Savile Row tailor who was willing to uh, kind of teach me and show me, not that I became a tailor, but teach me what he... What the architecture? I mean, I would never be able to know unless I apprenticed, but he had a lot of patience um, with me just in terms of showing me, um, you know, the process. So that was yeah. the lead up to Kingsman. So being able, so again, when Kingsman came along, I was like, oh, I get to work on a film that really goes into that culture. And it was fascinating to me. And then create Savile Suits kind of for the contemporary man, because it's contemporary film. Um, So that was really, really unique. I mean, my career really started with menswear with Lenny Kravitz, although I put him in a lot of women's clothes.
1: I was going to say you were like the first that really was way on the gender neutral dressing tip. I mean,
0: like (laughs) we couldn't find anything, (laughs) anything uh, meant there's nothing that existed for men that was anything close to what we did. Our inspiration was a Jackson 5 cartoon which was really popular when we we're kids. So if you think, if you ever Google it, the Jackson fives cartoon, which okay. was a Saturday morning cartoon of the Jackson five and the silhouettes are that seventies kind of elongated, almost like a fashion, you know, skinny waist. Lenny kind of has that body is amazing body. And um, so that was inspiration mixed with uh, David Bowie, you know, Ziggy Stardust and um, that gender neutral. And with Lenny, he was a fashionista, like even before I met him. So he was brave and open to anything. And that was just an extension of an organic friendship that we had. Um, it Are was, you
1: responsible for introducing him to Rick Owens? Um
0: Yes, I guess. Yeah, I think so. so Rick, well, Rick's an old friend of mine. When Rick um, and Michelle, hi, um, his partner, lived in L.A. for uh, way before Paris. And actually, uh, I, inter- I met Rick when I first moved here from New York uh, through a mutual friend. And he made some pieces for me for The Crow. He, at that time, was a pattern maker, and Michelle Lamy, his partner, was a fashion designer, and he was her pattern maker, and they were really cool, and, and you know, I went to visit them, and um, we became friends. We were all living in L.A., and um, I was like, yeah, I, you know, aesthetically, we're, we're, we're the same age. We're also very aligned with, like, that kind of goth. Time <laughs> and we had a lot of the same influences, whether it was like you know Maria Callas, Metallica, or like you know, um, Joy Division, you know, we kind of spe- spoke the same creative language, and um, so I had him make some pieces for me before I had his own collection. So he made some really amazing pieces for The Crow, and then he made a couple pieces for me for Tank Girl, um,
1: but the jean jacket, like. BDU thing
0: yeah the kind of you know at that time we were really Rick and I a lot of our conversations were about what Margella about what Margella was doing at that time and the deconstructed movement and um, that really and Helmut Lang his very very first couple collections that really informed a lot of my approach to Tank Girl, because Tank Girl was post-apocalyptic. Yeah. So that was, there were threads of that in fashion at the time with Margella breaking the rules and, you know, taking things apart, putting them together, make, you know, inside out seams, all that aesthetic really worked well for my character development for Tank Girl.
1: I also... um will say on the record that I used to wear goggles around my head. (laughs)
0: Uh, I love that.
1: All throughout. Yeah. yeah. I can't uh... take
0: credit for that. That's Jamie Hewlett, who wrote the comics. Totally all the genius of Jamie. I mean, that was one of the fun things about doing The Crow and Tank Girl, is having, um, which are to date, my only comic book movies. And, you know, I haven't done the big Marvel or DC uh, films for for. For specific reasons, but um, uh, the those days of working on those graph, you know, graphic novels in the comics that I was so inspired by the art in the Crow I was very inspired by the music references and by the art uh, that was kind of like akin to my early goth influence, and then um, Tank Girl was, you know, oh my God, just everything for me at that time. And, you know, I was really inspired by that. It was, it's really cool. It was really a unique experience to work on a film where you have, I mean, Kingsman's based on, on comic too, but we never looked at that really. I I never looked at it. It wasn't really part of the, the movie. um, But
1: Kingsman too. and, And I think that's that one of the coolest things about that too is, yeah. I mean that the, the merch aspect of it, you know, and the fact that, like, you designed a collection, and I, I know we, we were discussing that, but, like, I, I actually wish more movies would do that. Because the thing is, and like you had said in the documentary, people people were, were going to do it anyway, no matter what movie comes out. Like, people want, you know, I mean, geez, look at all the, you know, no shots to Bond, but just all the Bond collaborations over the year. I mean, just people want to look like the people in the movies,
0: I mean, I have to say my experience when it comes to like crazy fans that have sought me out, it's, <laughs> not, it's not like Madonna fans, although there's plenty of those. Sure. But it's like Ben Foster's jacket in 310 to Yuma. I have never had so many a good jacket. men <laughs> freak out. And Hunt Me down. well, first it was Brandon's costume in The Crow, but that was tainted for me because of the tragedy. Uh, So I never indulged any of that. And and then 310 to Yuma, the power of, and this is pre kind of social media, that Ben Foster jacket just resonated and the amount of fan mail and inquiries were nothing I'd ever experienced. uh, which you know, not even for the lead character of of that movie, and then of course the power of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and um, you know, I think like f- and and Kingsman. I mean, the experience with Kingsman. I went to China, uh, not for Kingsman, for a project I was doing with Prada, and I'll never forget. I was in super fancy hotel, and on our floor we had a butler, and it was uh, the a chinese man with a beautiful british accent in a full butler costume it was you know me and and, and my boyfriend were just like oh my god and um, he i could tell he wanted to ask me something and he was waiting for his boss to leave they you know showed us to the room and i was like here it comes he's going to ask me in the <laughs> and i can he's really polite and you know finally he spits it out and he just starts going off about Kingsman. And I was shocked. And, um, you know, you yeah, know, that was the greatest, and it really resonated for some reason in China, that whole, I was in China for 10 days on this Prada project. And uh, I, I swear, like I had a line of gentlemen who are constantly uh, once word got around that I had done the costumes and it was so funny. So like, it's true. I mean, the thing is, is that it makes so much sense to, like you, you were in marketing, right? Yeah. Involving the costume designer and merchandise is a, is a win-win. Because first of all, you have a way to promote the fashion or the costumes or the whatever, the merchandise from the film by promoting, the costume designer can talk about the actors Without The actors aren't going to endorse it because they, they're they not endorsing products from their movies. They're endorsing the movies. The problem is with these collections around movies is a timeline, right? So movies come out really quickly and the development um, has to happen at the same time as the costumes are being made. Right. Not the Halloween costume, not all that stuff that comes... Well, that's not true. I mean, I, th- I would... Am- when you're working on like those big superhero movies, you know, the studios involved with, they're signing off on all that, that art and design. So they're designing their merchandise simultaneously, but when it comes to developing a fashion collection, you just have to be able to turn it around quickly Mm. um, because, you know, usually it's, a year, sometimes less than a movie comes out from when you wrap it. So um, it's just a logistical challenge. And um, somehow how along the line, custom designers lost their IP. It, we used to have it like a few generations ago.
1: Oh, I didn't even and it, know that.
0: Yeah. It, like it got one of those things that, you know, the, the got negotiated out of our contracts Um, A a long time ago, but I believe in the time of Edith Head and, you know, Irene Schraff, that they own their IP. Um, One of the reasons why I was so excited about doing Hedwig is that um, in the theater contract, Classroom Designers own our IP. So I own my design for, so, you know, my friend Paul Taswell, for instance, who designed Hamilton, Every time there's a new Hamilton production that's launched, whether it's Australia or London or wherever, Macau, they, uh, his designs are licensed. Hell so yeah. He okay, did, good. Yes. So he is compensated for that. So every time a performance happens for Hedwig, I would get a certain percentage, just like the lighting designer and the set designer, because as the creative team, we own our IP. Um, and if you, the thing about theater is, it's a crapshoot. Because <laughs> what is it? Something like eighty percent of all theatrical productions uh, never get out of the black. I mean, they ever. So if you're lucky enough to hit it with a Hamilton or a Rent or a Kinky Boots or whatever it is then you could probably be set for the rest of your life but it's like being a supermodel it's like the 5% or less right so right right there, you know someone you know someone like Paul Tassel is a brilliant costume designer design Hamilton he's designed a lot of successful shows but i'm sure he's designed as many shows that we don't know about just in, in the breadth of his career uh, as most uh, theater designers. So um, it's more of a of, of a crap shoot, but when it hits, it hits. <laughs> and, there's an, and there's also something really esteemed. The experience of being a costume designer in theater is way more esteemed because, because you own your IP it permeates how you're treated in that you are, there's an um, equability along with the director and act. Everyone is at the same level of respect and collaboration. Whereas on a film, it's like a cast system. The actors finance the film and that's usually where the power structure goes from right right so yeah. everybody's in service of that actor who commands millions of dollars at the box office on a big movie and so you feel much more indispensable um you know actors and directors who are you know the 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 concept of above the line and below the line is an archaic term and what it refers to is above the line is everyone who makes residuals on film so that be writer director producer actors so those are people that kind of own that own their ip their intellectual property Everyone else from the cinematographer down to the caterer of which I'm below the line are below the line and we're work for hire. So we don't have skin in the game. We only get paid for the days we work. So the level of, uh, you know, of course you pick projects where you are esteemed and respected by the director, but in the money-making machine of power structure in uh, costume designers Uh, can be treated and have been treated all the time as replaceable Um, because Um, you, because we really are, you know, there are directors and producers that we are able to forge alliances with who we are indispensable to, but for the most part, we're not, we're not looked at that way. So it is a constant education. You know, the greatest thing about uh, where we're at now is that we have social media where costume designers can, you know, our, my colleagues are becoming more and more involved in social media and being able to share as we have a more behind the scenes culture and people are interested in the making of, and people like you are interested in, in talking to, to me as a costume designer. And I can tell you about this process and kind of pull the curtain back The more that we educate and share about what our job is, the more value that we will have. Um, And, you know, uh, I mean, we we, of course, uh, oftentimes feel, you know, you, you, you said it perfectly. Like, you know, when you saw that image of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, the teaser image for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, We think about this as costume designers all the time. You know, When you're looking at a frame of film, what are you seeing? You're seeing the actor, you're seeing their costume, and you're seeing their hair and makeup, and their costume really tells you who they are, where they are, what the time period is, and the tone, right? So as a costume designer, I design often to think about, if the sound goes out in the theater, I want to be able to give story clues character clues to who this character is so that you understand. You know, I always say, if you look at a best performance, like a nominated actor for best performance, you're also looking at a best costume because that costume helps that experience of that performance. That is their beam me up suit. So I always like, you know, I always say like, for a director and a costume designer and hair and makeup, when an actor is nominated or wins an award, like that's a shared experience mm-hmm, they are, yeah. shared, And, you know, it is acknowledged uh, sometimes, but, you know, we can take pride in those, those winning, winning performances.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever like, you know, created a part of a costume for, you know, an actor that they end up, just keeping and incorporating into their wardrobe, like just everyday life. They're like, I mean, cause I know I've, I've worked with folks into which we did something for the shoot and they're like, this is great. Can I get like five more of these?
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my best story was on Tink girl. Um, Malcolm McDowell, uh, I was, oh God, I was so nervous, like before our first fitting, cause he was such an icon to me after like, you know, clockwork orange. And uh, you know, it was, in the early '90s, so it wasn't like I could email him. I didn't even talk to him on the phone. I was just, and he had been working on another movie, so he really basically came to his fitting, and then was working three days later. So I had to design all his costumes without ever having a conversation with him. Now it's the directors that are leading what you know the character is about, but you just hope that the actor because actors will also spend a lot of time thinking about their characters and we will have opinions. Some do and some don't. Everybody's different. So I was super nervous and I was young in my career uh, for that fitting with Malcolm McDowell because it wasn't like we had time to change things and I actually designed all his costumes so they were all designed and built and made. So he showed up at the fitting and I was nervous about him anyway because I was thinking of like, you know, the character in Clockwork Orange and yeah. <laughs> I didn't know who I was going to meet or like Caligula or Oh Lucky Man. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I knew all his movies. And he walked in and he was very polite, you know, very elegant British man. He walked into the fitting room and I was explaining everything. I had his breakdown and a breakdown is usually like an ex- explanation of all the scene changes and what the costumes were and why they were this way, and what I was thinking. And then my visual mood book to kind of share with them, the thinking of why these costumes were this way, not just like, oh, this is a cool jacket. Right. Like giving him some character development based on my conversations with the director and why and who this character was. He looked around and he lifted some shoes and he, you know, I was like, oh my God, I was so nervous. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. Thank you so much. He's like, I've been so busy. I haven't had a chance to think about this character. I had no idea who he was. And now I know who he is. Thank you so much, you've helped me. And that happened early enough in my career that I felt that responsibility to every actor, like, oh, I can help them access that character. Um, So that was, oh, so the reason why I'm telling you this is because, so we shot the whole movie. Then the last day of shooting, I was in my office. We were on like the lot. I was in my office, I got called to set by the producer, which is never a good thing. Uh, And and the producer was not happy. Malcolm McDowell would not leave his trailer until his his contract, until it was written in his contract that he could keep his costumes. And I'm like, that's not my fault. Like I had nothing to do with that. And the producer was frustrated because they were running behind. He's like, he won't leave his trailer. And I'm like, well, I can't do anything about that. That's cool. But like, you know, that, that, that just means he likes his costume. So anyway, they worked it out. And I guess he got to take some of his costumes home. And that was also an early experience. That was, you know, the ultimate flattery. Yeah. I mean, I gave something to Harry Styles on don't worry, darling. And I always try and, you know, I don't own the costumes. the studio does, so um, it's not my I you know, I always have to ask the producers like, you we usually we have to keep all the costumes in uh, embargoed because of reshoots and stuff like that. Um, Harry, uh, Harry Styles did ask me to keep a couple things, and um I just did. I was like, <laughs> anything for Harry because Harry's so awesome, so, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it happens. It happens a lot of times. It's, it's, it's cool. I mean, not all the time, but, um, I think I gave a couple things to Brad Leo kept some things, you know, it'll be in their contract sometimes. Like if there's a double of something I started in all, you know, truthfulness over the years, I kind of nicked costumes here and there on shows myself because I'm not. Yeah, as you should. <laughs> I had like a couple racks of costumes that I've collected over the years, just one-offs here and there, and nothing real complete. And uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, um, it, the museum—they're opening their museum in September. It's going to be incredible. You have to check it out. Oh wow! And um, they're taking submission uh, donations. And, and let me just be clear: I have. I, I say I nicked things, but also I also had the producer's approval and, you know, most of the stuff that I was allowed to keep, but it's not a lot, it's here and there bits and pieces uh, was approved by someone, whether it was officially approved or, you know, I'm going to look the other way. I, I collected a bunch of things. And I'm not a collector. I hate having, I'm, I'm more Marie Kondo kind of person. So I, um, was so excited. So I just recently, during COVID, uh, cataloged everything, ended up being two racks of clothes, donated it to uh, the museum, and it's going to be part of their collection. And that to me, because what happened is studios often sell off costumes at the end of the embargo to recoup money. And it's like heartbreaking to hear like Joaquin's Johnny Cash Suit from Walk the Line is like, you know, for sale on some of those like, you know, hard rack cafe sites or whatever. It's depressing. I want other people to enjoy them, not private collectors. So, um, so that is really, 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 really exciting and, um, and, and totally worth it. I was like, I'm so glad I did that over the years. So, um, the one thing I didn't talk about, which has been really, Uh, a huge part of where I'm at today is that I um, started a social progress endeavor with a friend of mine called RAD, which stands for Red Carpet Advocacy. And um, the idea of uh, giving back, you know, a lot, you know, people have asked me for many, many years, like, um, to, like, Design a line of clothes, or to you know, take take what I do uh, outside of the projects and do something entrepreneurial. Right, right. And um, I finally met this really brilliant woman who comes from marketing, uh, luxury marketing. I met her. She worked at Prada and then at Dior, and she kind of had the kind of all the skills I didn't have, just in terms of like strategy and marketing and all the things I I'm not really versed on. And we started to think about what we would do together. And we both realized that, you know, I realized I didn't want to develop a product and she realized that she didn't want to like market like a luxury product to rich people. So we, the thing that was really uh, at the forefront of what we both want wanted to do was to find a way to give back Um, and, um, and then it was underscored. We started these conversations and then the election happened in 2016. It's like, we have to do something, you know, like we were marching, we were doing this, we're doing that. And, um, and so we created RAD, which stands for red carpet advocacy. And what we do is we infuse, um, purpose really into otherwise, uh, work we do anyway. So uh, we take, we leverage global platforms like the red carpet, um, both literally and figuratively, to uh, support talent, actors mostly, or any cultural icon, to help them advocate for causes or charities that they believe in. Um, And the reason why we support um, artists in this manner is because they have the biggest platforms and they yeah. have all those eyeballs on them. And that's how you really move the culture, uh, move the needle and change the culture. I mean, the truth is, is watching Madonna's philanthropy for so many years, you know, she invited me to Africa many times, she's built the first pediatric surgery theater in Malawi, Africa, schools, like incredible philanthropy that she's been doing. And every time she'd invite me to Africa, I was running to go do a movie or this and that. So I started to feel a bit of an imposter. I don't make the kind of money that I can write checks and and move the needle. And I also tried to join quite a few different um, nonprofit and charity organizations, but could really never get past orientation because I like traveling on to this job or my day was fourteen hours. So that's where I started to feel like, you know, you reach a level of success and I don't really measure success. I don't measure my success financially. I make a a good living and I'm totally grateful for that, but it's more of the success of waking up and loving my life and my job and getting to work with, go to amazing places and work with great people on incredible projects. So I just started to feel like if I can't, you know, I did a lot of talking to students and which I love and I still do and mentoring, but like, how can we like, when the election happened, it's like, we got to do shit. Like we got, to yeah. we got to, and there's uh and then, so we launched in 2019, um, And we are, we have done over 36 partnerships. We've raised over $2 million for nonprofits and charities and we've partnered with over 150 talent. Um, like it's been a really incredible ride. Check. You should check us out. Yeah. I'll,
1: Um, I'll make sure we put a link to it in the show notes and stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, so our Instagram handle is radvocacy. So it's at radvocacy. And then, um, If you wouldn't mind, check out our website at wearrad.org. And this is really great because what basically what I'm doing is changing the conversation with other creatives at work. So, like when we were working, when I was working on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we were just still gestating, um, that was 2018. So we're still mm-hmm. gestating our idea. So I talked to Margo about it. I talked to Leo about it. I talked to Brad about it, who are all very cause-minded. And, you know, I mean, I had meetings with Leo in his trailer telling him about what I was doing. And um, because he has this, you know, at the time he's dismantled his foundation, but he's still very, very involved in, you know, environmental space. Margot does, you know, she's an incredible advocate and Brad has been for many, many years, always been at the center of like, you know, um, it, you know, incredible, incredible advocacy. And so like, for instance, uh, you know, out of the gate, so we did a few things around Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we did a screening where Margaret Qualley was the host and we raised money for the, motion picture television fund, which is the, uh, is basically an old age home for people in the film industry and not necessarily, not, we're not talking rich actors, we're talking like the gaffers and people who also have had, um, you know, maybe there's someone who works in the business who's gotten cancer and they're the sole supporter of their family and they need uh, help and support uh, people that, you know, working people in the film industry. And then uh, we did a really amazing event uh, the night after the premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we did a dinner uh, with uh, Levi's, who made an incredible donation to Margot's charity, this teeny little amazing charity in Australia called Young Care, which supports people, um, young people with uh, brain Brain injuries and uh, different who who need help and support. It's everyone from cerebral palsy to people who are uh, vi- uh, victims and like the Iraq War or you know paralyzed from diving off a diving board. Young people who age out and are sent to nursing homes. This helps young people live, continue to live with their family and have. So that was really cool, and we did that. So she was on her. So what we do is we infuse it into kind of the promotional work that we're doing already. Right. So, that, um, so it's like, and then we did, like we did a whole campaign um, at the Venice film festival and the Emmys we came out, you know, and it's like, you know, ask me about what I'm wearing and let me tell you, like, I am wearing these, you know, this beautiful dress by Gucci and they're standing with me in support of, you know, UN women or whatever, whatever it is. So it's infusing purpose along the way. And it's really like great. Cause it's given me, it's allowed me to do, to, to have, um, to keep doing the work that I'm doing yeah. and be able to have these conversations with, other people in this set and how we can come together to um, help advocate and raise awareness. And it's, it's been really, really incredible. Nice.
1: That's awesome. That's really cool. I mean, I, especially with, I mean, and, and just all the wisdom and everything that you've shared
0: oh, is it's you. already.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's.
0: Thank you so much for your time and for your tenacity. Of course. Me, Your story. I feel like I want to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, no, keep me. stay in touch. Yes, let's please stay in touch. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for your time on Saturday.
1: (laughs) Of course. Thank you. All right, we'll see you. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. Our associate producer is Jason Schwimmer. Maddie Franklin is in your DMs and running the socials, and Brendan Finn edits the show. Theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find us on Instagram at Blammo Podcast. And do us a favor, leave a review on whatever app you're listening to us on right now, unless you're driving. If you can't stop and need all that hot content, join us on Patreon for tons of exclusive episodes, our private Slack group, merch hookups, and all the fun in the whole world. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. I'll see you next week.